Gonna have a real good time together We're gonna have a real good time together We're gonna laugh the child together Have a real good time together Welcome to Jokerman Podcast. You know, uh, it's not Bob Dylan Podcast any- anymore. We, we are once again a podcast about the Velvet Underground. Right. We took one month in November to go back to doing the thing we did for, what, like two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And uh, now that's finished. But um, there's there's just more for us to talk about, about the Velvet Underground. What a shame. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Plenty more plenty more treats ahead. Uh you are Evan. Right. I am Ian. And tonight we are thrilled to be joined by one of the greats, uh, of Luna, Galaxy Five Hundred, and uh, film soundtracks even. Yeah. And Dean and Britta is the other, oh, the yeah. other group. Yeah, the other group, my group, my boy, my son says that's the worst band name ever. <laughs> it's, it's it's sort of tough to Google. Uh, <laughs> it's just two people. You know Luna is tough to Google too. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Dean. Uh, and I I want to just make sure to to get right off the top. Uh, I was just spinning a couple songs uh, on Spotify before we hopped in tonight. Uh, uh, fantastic cover of most of the time. Oh, thank on you. Your covers record from 2017, and also uh, maybe the only artist to ever cover a Velvet Underground song from Squeeze. Yeah. <laughs> uh, your cover of Friends is uh, absolutely fantastic. Honestly, like maybe the best song on Squeeze. I think. Yes, the only good song on Squeeze. How can I tell her? What can I say? We've been friends for so long Never knew it could go wrong Yeah, the uh, the chutzpah to cover a Squeeze-era Velvet Underground song is... I just got to commend you for that. That's a fantastic move. <laughs> Thank you. I, you know, I, d- I never actually bought that album. I was, I was like, nah, that's that's expensive. And, and that, you know, the beauty of Spotify, I didn't have to buy it. I could just listen to it. There you go. It. Yeah, that's one where you look at it in your collection and it's kind of just like... It's lonely, right? I have it. <laughs> I've got it. You do have to alphabetize, you know, because it is. It does still say Velvet Underground on the spine, so it does have to come after oh, the yeah. other four. But it, it's just, you know, it's some, there's something that just doesn't fit quite right. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, we are here to talk about uh, the fourth of four Velvet Underground records. We've made it through uh, the previous three and on to four. And Dean has been so kind uh, as to uh, to join us to talk about. A real just good times rock and roll record loaded, which uh, longtime listeners will know Evan and I have had some disagreements about, but we'll get to that uh, <laughs> in a little what bit. Time I come down on, what side I come down on? Yeah, I, I can't I, wait to I see. I bought this one um, <laughs> when I was in high school. Back at, back in the uh, late 1970s when I was in high school, mm. you couldn't buy Velvet Underground records. You could, what you could get was um, uh, Live 69, mm-hmm. which I 
that was the first one I bought. I just I played that to death. I loved it. And you get loaded. The others were all. Uh, so Live '69 was the first time, the first Velvet Underground music that you heard. Yes, it was. Wow. Yeah, that's still my favorite. If that was the first thing you heard of Velvet Underground, was them in 1969, it probably wasn't such a great shock to hear Loaded or right. a, no. a, such an, a huge adjustment of ideas. And um, for me, like a lot of other people, I, I became very <laughs> attached to the version of the band that was like uh, just like an evil black and white film yeah. of, a, of a cigarette burn. Right, <laughs> right, right. And so it was different when I heard Loaded. It is different. I mean, certainly Loaded is uh, is less uh, adventurous and groundbreaking than uh, those than those first two records are. But yeah, From, um, uh... still, I would argue that it, it's pretty uh, that 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 the, the third and fourth albums. It's really hard to say that those would take second place to the first and second ones. I don't know. They're all great records. It's it's good music, as we say on the program. Yes, you know it's it's not it's not as groundbreaking. You know, from like an artistic, uh, you know, uh, just like treading new ground, avant garde uh, type of uh, approach. Obviously, um, but I think from like breaking ground in. Lou Reed's, you know, songwriting career, Lou Reed's, you know, career as a musician, I feel like Loaded is just as kind of uh, um, fresh and new and exciting uh, for him as an artist and, and incorporating a new kind of um, direction and uh, and feeling and mood into his yeah, repertoire. Totally. I agree. Um, but before we talk about Loaded, uh, we did want to make sure to talk to you, Dean, because uh, you have had uh, a privilege afforded to very, very few folks uh, in that you actually uh, have played with Open 4, the fucking Velvet Underground yes, with true. Luna. <laughs> yeah, we got that call in, I guess, 1993. 93. My manager called. She's like... Are you interested in Vel- opening for the Velvet Underground? And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what kind of connection is that? <laughs> How could that happen? Um, they did happen. It did happen. Yeah, so we did uh, like three weeks with them in Europe. Incredible. Man. Um, and started, yeah, started, the first show was in Edinburgh, the Playhouse in Edinburgh. Okay. Um, which I remember while just sitting in the sitting in the dressing room under the stage hearing them rehearse and sounded pretty cool and I, <laughs> I realized right then I was like oh for, for all the bands who supposedly sound like the Velvet Underground and obviously they're a huge influence on me and on so many others and I was like no, nobody sounds like them nobody sounds like that mm. yeah line up and on that tour it's it was it was um it's a strange thing because it's it's like the the band it's like the it's the first incarnation of the band but they're also playing a lot of stuff from the third and fourth albums so right, so right, in a way right. it was kind of uh, it was neither one nor the other and um, I know like Sterling had to Sterling Morrison had to play bass on a bunch of tracks and he's like ah oh, he's like I hate playing bass why well, he <laughs> he wanted to get um, Doug Yule on the tour he was like really yes absolutely he was like we should include Doug Yule and. Then, but Lou wouldn't have it, so. Wow. Um, but, uh, you know, I thought it was like, it was like brave. They just went out there, the four of them, they just played their instruments. They didn't have, you know, hidden musicians or backing tapes or anything like that. They just did. Right. Um, they're not, they're, you know, 
you listen to that, the live album they put out, it's, it's, uh, I, I don't like it. It's, it's, if I want to listen to live, album, I'll, I'll go back and I'll listen to live 69. Right. To that stuff, just cause the, the singing is, is much better and it is, they're a lot groovier. And, yeah. and that's, I think that is the, that is my opinion on, on live recordings of the, of this band that, that they are a much better live band. Uh, in the in the Doug Yule era than they are in the in the Kale era, but well, interesting. I mean, that is you know when they were the tightest and most practiced as a band. Yes, like that, that period of of '69 where which it's it totally makes sense that that is committed to record because it's it's a ba- it's the band at their most professional, um, and I think that's something about Loaded that you touched on, Ian. It's like something that I, as somebody who is sort of like loaded agnostic have kind of tried to uh, come to understand and have come to understand more about it is that it's like the sound of Lou Reed becoming more comfortable and trying things and feeling looser and freer and groovier. Uh, And like that only happens if, you know, imagine what has to, all the things that have to line up to make Lou Reed feel content enough to be groovy right so many factors have to be in play and that's the magic of this record in that in that period yeah yeah and you've got them i mean a a bunch of the loaded stuff at least four of those songs are on the live 69 so they've been playing them they've been playing them for months they know yeah they've got um uh rock and roll sweet jane ocean which doesn't make the record and there's one more there's some interesting demos of uh of ocean on like the expanded set uh they brought john in to actually do like an organ part well that, um, that that's on... disputed is that's, it disputed really? so, i mean kale claims that he was brought in to play the organ on that doug Yule says no why would john kale be brought i was like i've been playing the organ on that song live for months uh. why why you know what makes <laughs> kale you think that kale got it is but then he conceded he's like well maybe kale played on one of those demos on a day that i wasn't there or something but it, right it does seem kind of strange yeah yeah in the uh in anthony de curtis's lou biography that i was just reading rereading the loaded uh section earlier today he mentions that that uh john was brought in on his own apparently because his his uh relationship with all the remaining band members was so fucked up at the time because of the way that he had been exited from the band right uh but i guess if john's brought in alone then who who who's to say if john actually got brought in yeah who knows? Before we skip ahead, I do just want to dwell a little bit on uh, what what it was like to actually uh, get that call, then have it actually happen, and uh, at what point did you did you meet them all or like? Did, yeah, I met them. So I met work? them all. Like I met them that that first night. I remember um, that just first, that first like the that, actual night of the show the, was the time the, the first time you met them. Yes, I had not met. Oh man. <laughs> Uh, you know what? I had met Mo Tucker before that because I interviewed okay. her when I when I was a, a, a I'm a failed music journalist. I just, I tried, I, <laughs> you're I, talking no, you're, two of them right here. You're a successful <laughs> one if you interviewed Mo Tucker. Yeah, that's, that's I, I lied my way. I said that I worked for a magazine. I didn't. But then I was I was able to sell it to to the Bob and I interviewed with her. Um, you're describing yes. success. Yes, <laughs> success. Um, so I was in the dressing room. Uh, talking to Lou, and he and he turns around, and there's a couple of like um, Scottish journalists there, and he's like, "Are you are you guys journalists?" And they're like, "Yeah." And he's like, "Get the fuck out of here! This is a private <laughs> conversation." <laughs> 
Uh, and so anyway, his, his bodyguard uh, kicked him out. He had a bodyguard on that tour. This guy, of I, I forget his name. He used to he used to be Billy Joel's, and then I guess. Oh my god! Oh my god! Are you kidding me? Lou poached him. <laughs> a, a an ex-cop. You're telling me that that Lou Reed poached Billy Joel's ex-cop bodyguard? I don't know ex I, exactly how it went down. I don't know. <laughs> Chalk another one up into the fucking book, the Billy Joel books. Billy Joel just keeps coming up. I don't know why. Really? On, on this show, yeah, because mm -hmm. he's kind of like the like uh, the ghost or reflection of of certain aspects of Lou Reed. He and Lou are the dark and the light side of Long Island. <laughs> <laughs> well put. Yeah. Uh. And, but so had they were they were they Luna fans were they Galaxy Five Hundred fans or was it just literally like you guys were the right band right time sort of thing? Um, I think he had heard our first album because it was produced by Fred Marr, who played drums in the Lou Reed band and maybe he'd, mm. he'd sent it to him and uh, yeah that might, that must have been the connection he's like yeah these guys sound good I don't know so yeah it came from him sure he was right and uh, yeah. and. Um, <laughs> It was fun, you know. We got he treated us well. The band were always very nice to us. The crew, the English crew, treated us pretty poorly, but that's okay. They were, well, the English they were working hard and <laughs> took out their stuff on us, but um, yeah, so we did a bunch of the tour until we got to Paris, which is where they record the live album. And in, in Paris, mm -hmm. they're like, Oh, we're filming this one and we've got so much video equipment, we can't fit you, we can't have an opening band. So, you guys, please do it. You got to watch the shows anyway. <laughs> um, and then after that tour, they I guess they went on, they opened for U2 at some festivals or something. They did? Yeah, yeah. Um, wow, that's news to me. Uh, yeah. And um, and then they broke up. They had a, they, they couldn't get along. Anymore. Nope. Uh, they, they had a big argument over who was to produce the live album. And Lou was Ugh. like, I'm going to be the producer of the live album. And I think Kale was like, well, you know, I've produced a couple of records, too. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of nice to see that they broke up again. It's tradition. Yeah, their whole careers, you know, both of their whole careers. It seems like every couple of years they kind of like, they reconcile, they come back together, whether they're, they're just like playing live with one another or obviously with Trella or with the reunion tour. And then just something sets one of them off and it, just, it all falls apart again. There's, that's, there's just, also that's the story of John and Lou. Something kind of magical about them opening for you too because it's like they even at their reunion like their big uh, e-ticket uh, event reunion of the most influential rock band ever like it's just a reminder that like they will never be the commercial band like even at that level they are always going to be the one that opens for someone like you too yeah yeah they they it would although we all know it that's a a blasphemy that's like i mean it should always be the other way around like every other band opening for them but uh that's just the way that they uh they existed true to themselves to the very end not headlining yeah. coachella right i think uh richie underberger in his book he mentions that they were like on that tour there were signs of you know that things were getting fractious already and it's like there's one show where lou and sterling are having an argument on stage over something <laughs> um, and I think I, I heard that story from from Sterling. It's like what what Lou had this giant um, um, uh, paddle board for his that it was built for him by um, 
what's the guy's name? I can't remember some English guy anyway, but he was like, it had all these buttons on it. It was like a stealth bomber. It was this huge black thing. <laughs> and he was like stepping on one of them and it, and it, cause he was a big gearhead. He's really right. he stepping sure on was. one button that's supposed to activate a fuzz or something and it doesn't work. And Sterling comes over and is like, what's going on? He's like, this one doesn't work. And Sterling's like, well, don't use that one then. But <laughs> <laughs> it good advice. Well, that's fantastic. Should we uh, should we do what we're here to do? Should we go back and talk about Loaded? I guess so, yeah. Good evening. We're called the Velvet Underground. Mm. You're allowed to dance in case you didn't know. Loaded on Atlantic Records, signed yep. by Armit Ertigan, who's in the news today. Have you guys read the papers? Uh, I'm not, no. Indulge us. Oh, yeah. He's dead. He's dead, you know. But okay. <laughs> Rest in peace. He's being hit with a, um, um, a sexual assault uh, lawsuit. He ah. and his estate and I guess Atlantic Records or whatever. Oh, anyway. well, somebody should stop him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, Black Rider took care of that for us. He did, yes. So I, <laughs> I read that, that Erdogan wanted to sign sign the Velvet Underground because he wanted to get close to Vel to Andy Warhol because he really wanted to sign the Rolling Stones. Right. Wow, that's yes. some 3D chess. Yes. Yeah, there was a note There was a note about that in, in the De Curtis bio. I don't know if that was the, the same thing or if, they were just drawing from, if he was drawing from the same source that you were looking at, Dean. But uh, yeah, it said something like, because uh, the Velvets, you know, the first couple records were all on MGM, Verb yes. or whatever. And then they moved to this major label, Atlantic, for Loaded after three records of just like absolutely, extraordinarily disappointing records from a commercial standpoint. Box uh, office poison. Box <laughs> office poison. That's right. Um, and yeah, it's it's mentioned that they had they had the aura of Warhol to them or something, right. even though yes. they were no longer connected with Andy yes. and Lou had obviously you know severed that relationship. Um, uh, In other words, prior. Andy Warhol did his job and he he imbued his glamour onto this band. Once again, was still acting as their protector yeah. several yeah. years after Lou told him to fucking take a hike. Well, I thought yeah. you know watching that recent. Uh, the, uh, the Velvet Underground documentary. Yeah. I, I came away thinking, well, Lou made uh, the right decision to, yeah. uh, to cut ties with Andy Warhol. My, I, I feel like much in the same way that, um, that Malcolm McLaren over, overshadowed the Sex Pistols and turned it into mm. a circus. It was kind of like he was doing that. And people were coming to see them. And Danny Fields makes the point in, the, in that movie. He's like, the band look great. The band sound great. Why is why are they being covered in polka dots and lights and stuff? Um, <laughs> it's a classic example of, uh, you know, it's like the, the Daniel Lanois effect with Dylan. The sort of resistance to being um, produced in a certain way. Yes. Um, I think that yeah, I've I've sort of thought a lot about that too, Dean, about like why why that happened, and watching that doc did kind of like elucidate a couple points where it seems like, especially at this point with Loaded, I think you're starting to see like you know that it has very little to do with what was going on in the Warhol scene, even just aesthetically, like they're it's kind of stretching and, and moving in ways and even firing John Cale. I think like it was part of that same. Yeah. Thought no, I, I thought that, I thought that was a good move too. I mean, it's like, whatever, they're not getting along. It's two big egos. They're not getting along. It's like, for right. the, I don't know. 
it and happens. He, <laughs> he had to do certain things that were kind of uh, aggressive or like in some ways, you know, socially like violent and burn some bridges to um to get to a place where he could do what this record does really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, so is, I, I guess every every record you make in, in a way is a reaction against the previous one. Right. Um, uh, so if we go back and look at the situation, the previous one is the third album, super, super quiet. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, although in, in a way, in addition to that third album, there's the there's album three and a half that hasn't come out. They've, they've made a whole bunch of other recordings. Right, like the VU, for, for, uh, for, the for stuff it, that was on the VU yes, collection. Yeah. Yes, they've made those for MGM. Um, and then they've been dropped. So that's the, that's the situation there. And they've been dropped, which has got to be kind of deflating. I mean, I know it's, hap- it's happened to me. It's deflating. It's not fun. No matter <laughs> what, you know. So there you are. We've been dropped. We're no good. Um, um, and maybe so maybe the attitude going into loaded is, oh, well, we'll show them. Right. You know, that we'll make this album. It's, I mean, just filled with. Well, it's it's, it's got filled. Sales. It's it's loaded. Yeah. It's loaded, <laughs> loaded with hits, loaded as with the hits. legend uh, as the legend goes. In terms of the title, double entendre. You know, one of Lou's favorite things, uh, referencing being completely stoned off your ass, loaded, but also Hammered, it's just yeah. loaded, with, <laughs> loaded with number one hits that are going to go straight to the top of the charts. Um, you know. If only, if only that part it's had lo- been true. Yeah, it's loaded with hits, but no one seemed to know what the hit was and or ident- right. identify it correctly. Almost like they <laughs> needed a producer. Yeah. They needed someone like a, a some kind of promoter. Or is it, I mean, it's funny. It's like there is that aspect where it's like you know that Warhol probably would have come up with some really great way to package and and showcase this type of version of the band, but like. It's. It seems like Lou is, yeah, like anxious to prove to himself that he didn't need. But we have to. We have to. I I guess in the label's defense, what what you could say as to why this album is not a hit is that the lead singer quit before it came out. (laughs) Oh yeah, yeah. So um, I mean, I think I feel the same way about the like the first Modern Lovers album. You're like, well, this is great record. Why didn't it make more of an impact? Well, maybe because like Jonathan Richmond came back from vacation. It's like I don't want to play these songs anymore. I've changed. I don't believe after Bermuda. Yes. (laughs) Never let your lead singer go to Bermuda. No. They'll get to relax. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or California in this case. Yeah, the uh, I mean, the band was falling apart at this time. Uh, you know, the the uh, record was recorded by really just Lou Sterling and um, and Doug. Uh, Mo is credited here, but she doesn't actually play anywhere on the record. Uh, she's she was pregnant at the time. And so Doug and his brother actually recorded almost all of the drum parts. I think there was one other kind of session guy that came in for a couple times. Um, and they ran through a series of different producers at Atlantic, too. Uh, and then, yeah, Lou quits the band four months before it even comes out. Steve Sesnick, the manager, is, like, whispering in Doug Ewell's ears and trying to get him to take over the band the same way that Lou had taken over from John, because Sesnick is really trying to still turn this band into a fucking commercial entity for whatever reason. It's just... Uh, it's it's the the fates conspired against them in the worst possible way, and yet and still, you know, I think that the music within is uh, really stands is a testament to just the raw power of really Lou Reed and 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 Doug and Sterling. Yeah. Um, at this time, I guess I've heard I've heard you know even heard Doug you'll say oh we should have waited for Motaka. 
Yeah. Right. But, uh, which is a nice sentiment, but I don't really think you can argue with the results on this album. No. You know, and say that it would have been better if they had waited for Motor. Because I just can't imagine them doing this album. I mean, album I would argue better. it, but uh, <laughs> that's, that is my only point. I mean, not because I think it sounds bad, but because I feel like Mo and her playing is such a part of the identity of, of that sound, of that thing that makes them sound the way that they did. And you're already down a John Cale, and then you're down a Mo Tucker. It's like... It start it starts to be kind of um, tenuous what connects it uh, to what it was before. Um, well, but yeah, you can make that you can make that case. But uh, the I, case I, could I, be. I, I, yeah, I'll, I, I'll argue uh, on behalf of of, of Doug Yule. Like I, I think his contributions on on this record are amazing, and that, and that's what well, that's what, that's totally. what happens on this record. So because on, on the third album. Um, you, Doug Yule is playing bass and occasionally a bit of organ, and he sings. Caroline says, "Right." But on on this Candy. record, yeah, he's um, right out the gate. Candy says, "Yeah." Uh, on this record, he's he's all he's all over it. And we we'll, mm-hmm. we'll take a look song by song when we go song by song. But he plays a lot of the stuff. They don't they don't track it as a band because they don't really have a fixed drummer. Like you said, it's sometimes it's Doug Yule, sometimes it's Billy Yule, sometimes it's um, Adrian Barber, the producer. Sometimes this guy Tommy, Tommy, somebody whose name they don't even they didn't even know. I think right. <laughs> um, so they're like tracking it. Just they're just experimenting each time. Like I was a couple of people laying and laying it down. Often the drums are put on after after the fact. Well, uh, the first song sounds pretty good. Whatever is going on. First song. Who loves the sun? Mm, come on. The sun Who cares that it makes plants grow? Who cares what it does since you broke my heart? Who loves the wind? Who cares that it makes breezes? Who cares what it does since you broke my This one, Great. like, it just this, the same way that uh, that Doug kicks it off on the previous one, uh, he kicks it off, uh, kicks it off for us here, and and yet the effect and the uh, the emotional kind of resonance could not be further afield, like as as uh, quiet and uh, uh, you know kind of insular as Candy says feels. Who loves the sun is just like kaleidoscopic technicolor bright beautiful like this is fucking pop music like this song sounds amazing right right up until today in 2022 yeah it does sound. and and this is actually this song actually is the song that gets picked to be the single from the album right but that they picked the single like, for good like, reason like five months after the record comes out mm-hmm. yeah kind of for good reason but kind of like i don't know it's if you were going to pick if you were going to pick two songs from this album that should be this that should be the single what would they be 
obviously uh, Sweet Jane and and rock and roll and rock and roll. Yeah, I, yeah. I think. So it's just like, but sometimes like, maybe you're so close to it, yeah. you can't you can't see this. You have I don't know or, or yeah. Well, that's that's a funny thing about the record. It's like listening to it. I mean, those are the next uh, songs up on here, and I kind of was just like so shocked at how front loaded it felt, just because of how deep those songs go into. I'm I'm sure I'm not alone. Like those songs just are kind of mammoth versus everything else. Two of the as most good significant as everything songs. Else can be, like, yeah, two of the most significant songs in Lou Reed's entire career. Two of the most significant songs in just like the fucking medium of rock and roll. Yes, like Sweet exactly. Jane and Rock and Roll are just as huge as Tutti Frutti. Like these are yeah. like like foundational texts, and they're just stacked one one after the other at the start of this record. Yeah. So I mean, if, are we on to Sweet Jane already? Well, but I I, I was going to say with who, with Who Loves the Sun, I think single wise, right? I think it makes sense that this would have been picked as the single in yeah seventy one, yeah, a year after Lou has quit this band because the Velvet Underground, quote unquote, the Velvet Underground still exists, right? They still yes. have a contract oh, yes, with Atlantic yeah. at this time, and this is like of the Doug songs, I think, because uh, Sweet Jane and Rock and Roll are both Lou songs in terms of the lead vocalist. Like this is. This is the catchy, the poppy, like, if this, if this band has a future in 1971, mm-hmm. it's this sound with this vocalist. That's true, you're so, right. He's still in the band, so that makes exactly. that make sense. He is sense. the band, basically. Kind of speaks to how, like, up in the air everything was at that point, that, like, the music executives and the people, just, even the fans were probably just, like, even the band themselves, I think, were kind of um, not able to really understand where things were headed, what, what was going on, like... Everything that we think about is like the early phase of the band and all that mystique and darkness is like something that just felt probably like old hat to the people in the band or to Lou, certainly at this point. And there was kind of already some reason, like some precedent for a song like Who Loves the Sun, because you've got stuff like on on the third record um, that really feels not so far off um you've got stuff from like femme fatale even doesn't feel so far off um in terms of that kind of like classic 60s pop songwriting milieu that they would dip into right sunday morning yeah yeah sunday morning absolutely what's keeping some record guy uh, at the label from being like sure the this guy named doug now does those yeah, I mean, but it's a it's a great song. Uh, it is a it's great just song. Like, it's a fantastic song, and I really do love Doug's vocals here. I feel like we maybe gave him a little bit of short shrift on on the last time we talked about the Velvets because we are a John and Lou podcast, so we needed to we needed to be in John's corner after Lou gave him the boot uh, after White Light White Heat. Uh, but I mean, at this point, I think Doug is is really like an integral uh, and and uh, essential member of the band. And this just like really kind of like straightforward and innocent kind of presence that he brings to this this sound uh, that is so much so, it has so much. Like, yeah, I would say uh, the, the sound, <clears throat> the sound, and also <clears throat> the chord structure. This is one thing I forgot, I feel like I've noticed with the with the fourth album. That um, there's a lot more complicated chords and there's, exactly. there's there are key changes and the harmonies mm-hmm. and, and all this stuff that I think Yule is responsible for. At least I can't think of any other reason why all of a sudden it's starting to show up on there. They sound albums. like a practice rock and roll band all of a sudden, which, you know, there is something beautiful and brilliant in the just like primitivism of the first couple records, obviously. 
Um, but uh, but like we were talking about, you know, at the beginning of this uh, a few minutes ago, like this is this is a new dimension, a new direction for Lou to be moving in, uh, and something that he's gonna you know move towards and move away from and move towards and move away from you know throughout the rest of his career. Uh, but it's just exciting to see that the guy that was able to do you know fucking Sister Ray um, was also capable of really just putting together just like tight tights beautifully produced uh, and beautifully developed kind of pop songs that could that should have been able to you know sell a million copies whether or not they actually did is another matter yeah and and lyrically the song is uh oh no i just really respond to it it's a great little heartbreak song yeah um it's kind of like it's, it's just it's raining in my heart Kind of, I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. yeah, it's straight out of fucking Dion and and the yeah. doo-wop kind of uh, 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 world in terms of a lyrical uh, sensibility. Yeah, it's kind of timeless, uh, just a man on the street type music. <laughs> man on the street. Speaking of being on the street, standing on the corner. The corner, yeah. I mean, sweet Jane, like, come on. <laughs> and it's nice how it, it's segue. It's just. Cut straight into it like that. Right into it, yeah. Standing on the corner Suitcase in my hand Jackson's corset, Jane is in her vest And me, I'm in a rock and roll band huh. Riding a studs back at Jim You know, those were different times all, all the poets, they studied rules of verse And those ladies, they rolled their eyes That intro to Sweet Jane is so... I feel like you, Evan, you, have so much tied up in that, like, five-second kind of psychedelic, uh, yeah. you know, uh, like, kaleido- kaleidoscope sound and intro to Sweet Jane. Can you just... Well, I think what we're, what we're doing in real time on this episode right now, talking about it with the two of you, it feels like I'm detangling some some, like knots in my mind about what this record is like why i have issues with it and ways in which it's complicated how are you going to deal with um with rock and roll animal when you get to that well we have gotten to rock and roll oh you have okay we're all over the map in terms of in terms of time all right i think that the way that it works out in my mind is that like this song and this era like there's times when it seems like lou reed is swept along by other people um and Despite that, I mean, it ends up often being something really kind of strange and and great in its own way. Yeah, like rock and roll animal is like kind of feels like a a kind of attempt to puff himself up in the eyes of the commercial interests and kind of like the the flavor yeah. of the week. Well, at least it's an attempt to do, it's it's, it's uh, an adventure. It's like something different. I mean, I felt the same <laughs> sure, way about the record with, with with Metallica. It's like at least he's like taking chances, try well, exactly uh, breaking new right. ground. And, and that's why I think I've come to kind of soften my feelings about when that comes up, and I feel like 
I think my first instinct on listening to this record was like certain aspects of it feel okay this is kind of compromised for you know you don't have john you don't have mo and lou seems to just be letting all this production go on top of what he does but i think that ultimately when you really digest his whole career something you can't ignore is that he part of what makes him great is that he's actually kind of flexible and generous in what he allows to happen um with his own music and that is not something that I think a real fan of his would disparage when you look at like what, when it works, like it's worth, it's worth it. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that uh, strikes me immediately about this song is just, you know, it's just the vocal. What a, what a great vocal it is. And why oh. when, when he's, when he's on, he's one of the best you know, rock singers ever. He's like, I mean, no question. he's not Marvin Gaye or something, but just the attitude and the the phrasing and the, and this is, yeah. I mean, these are things that, that Doug Yule can't do as a singer. Just, right. Yeah. Yeah. This is one tell, that tells a story like this and inhabit a, a character. And yeah. It's, this is one that had to be like, it makes sense that this is the Lou song and uh, who loves the sun would be a Doug song. Like you can't imagine, you can't imagine Lou, you can imagine Lou singing who loves the sun. And obviously I'm, I'm sure that he did, but you can't imagine Doug doing sweet Jane with no. the same kind of just no. edge and, and grit and authenticity that Lou does. Something that Lou and Bob Dylan and Van Morrison all have in common is kind of like, I think when they sing, they don't think of themselves as white boys. They kind of like, (laughs) they they just like kind of close their eyes and think about their favorite soul singers and their favorite blues artists. And they kind of really connect to that in this way that um, when they're singing in that moment, who's to say that they're not? as good or yeah, re- re- the same Rich, thing. Richard Hell makes that point about Bob Dylan too, that he's, well, that he's there you go. Yeah. Rhyming with Richard Hell, Evan. Uh, you big van <laughs> guy, Dean? Um, you know, uh, yeah, not lately, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, you know, I like, I love Astral Weeks. Yeah. Astral Weeks yeah. is, is a classic. Uh, and so is Sweet Jane. I mean, th- this is like I said, like one of the foundational texts. It's like, uh, and th- this is a song they've been doing. They've been doing live also. Obviously, it's morphed from the version that they were doing, right? Uh, that's captured on Live '69 with the full bridge, and and apparently, I guess with a with a with a new chord. And there's this there's this uh, Ignacio Julia tells this in an interview with Sterling Morrison. He tells the story of like Lou's playing him the song, and Sterling's like. What's with the fourth chord? Which he took to mean like, oh, our songs don't have that many chords. I'm like, no, I don't think that's what he's saying. He's saying that like from the from the, from the live version to this, he's thrown in this extra chord <laughs> that kind of makes the song jump. Right. There's that thing uh, in a, in one of the Lou live albums. He takes the time to pause playing "Sweet Jane" and explain the chord there. <laughs> so you thought it was three? It's really four. Watch. Three. But what's really happening? As in most things in life, it's that little hop at the end. And he's very proud of it. That's funny. (laughs) 
Uh, it's like that's the secret sauce, and that's why uh, nobody can do it like me. <laughs> and so, I, well, I guess the, the controversy again about this song, this version of the song, is that it, as it as it came out unloaded, it's got the bridge cut out of it. Right. Heavenly wine and roses seem to whisper to me, which I don't have a problem with. But that's again, that's the way I first heard it. So, I, I, but that that's I, what you're always going to imprint. I heard the slow like version on the live one. I heard this. I'm like, I'm fine with both of them. Absolutely. So now, now that the the expanded. What's it called? Yeah, full length version. Fully loaded. Fully loaded comes with the, yeah. with the full length version. I'm like, yeah, I think I prefer the other one. And yeah, we, and, and so you know, the, the, Lou Lou Reed's always maintained that it was done after he left the band. They went and cut it up. Where uh, Doug Yule's like, no, Lou Reed is the one who made that. Edit. Lou did it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so who knows? Uh, uh, rock and roll comes right after Sweet Jane. I mean, like, okay. When she was just five years old There was nothing happening at all Every time she puts on the radio There was nothing going down at all Not at all Then one fine morning she puts on a New York station You know she don't believe what she heard at all She started shaking to that fine, fine music You know her <laughs> how are you going to be mad at rock and roll, Evan? Come well, on. How, how are you going to be mad at this whole record when it contains Sweet Jane and rock and roll and Who Loves the Sun as the first three songs? Uh, uh, I mean, her life was saved by rock and roll. I mean, no, I mean it's a this beautiful is, song. Whose life hasn't been saved by rock and roll? It's a song that All has become more and more like... Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. it's, it's Something that struck me about listening to this, to it this time around, like lately, it was like... That this is really a song, again, about the radio. And this is a song about the radio being like this thing that we don't have anymore of this kind of uh, relationship that you had with with disc jockeys and yeah. with the radio station as being like, no matter what was going on, there's something, it's different playing a song for yourself on, on a streaming service than it is to be surprised and delighted by somebody you have ideas and thoughts about. Mm-hmm. Talking to you from the radio and then playing the song. Yeah, and that's also we just don't have that. There's something. There's something about broadcast radio and broadcast TV that feels a little different to something that you decided to go and stream at that moment because you've made a choice right. to something. That, it's it's there. It's like beaming at me right now, not by my choice. It's just out there, and I'm well. I'm there's that idea it. that it's it's shared that like you you're not crazy to believe that somebody like the love of your life may be listening to the same song at the same moment. There, it's something. It's the closest thing to the internet that existed before 
that was the thing. Yeah. Like that, and also there's there's someone behind there's someone behind this like there's someone behind the curtain with with broadcast radio with a disc jockey or with even television, right? Versus Spotify, if you just click like fucking play me the Velvet Underground, and then also play me play me songs that other people that listen to the Velvet Underground also listen to, right? It's just there's no there's nothing dictate. That's just a computer fucking uh, program that's written by some square in an office in Stockholm. Uh, with a disc jockey, like there's a real, you know, you have a connection with an individual person who is selecting item after item after item and illustrating Wolfman the ways Jack. that they, yeah, Wolfman yeah. Jack, exactly, the ways that they rhyme or the ways they don't rhyme. Um, you know, it's there's there's something uh, essential and human that was lost with that transition, uh, and something that Lou has commented on, something that Bob has commented on, something that Donald Fagan has commented on with the Nightfly. All those guys are obsessed with it. All our boys with the radio and the DJs, rightly so. I'm. I wish we had that. Well, we are that. <laughs> you, are, you are the Joker, man. That's true. Yeah. yeah, it's like the the Pagliacci joke. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um. Yeah. I mean, rock and roll. <laughs> Rock and Roll is is the one song that they actually did record for MGM, but it didn't. So it's from those sessions, and right. this version's a lot better than that. That's out there on the, I don't know. It's, it's yeah, all those somewhere. extra versions yeah. of those, and yeah, those those earlier versions are are kind of like weirdly like skeletal. You know, it's almost it's almost odd to hear the like the 1969 version of the Velvets. You know, the Velvet Underground third record, Velvet Underground recording Rock and Roll when you're so used to this version yeah, of rock yeah. and roll you yeah. know it's like it's interesting to hear but it's like you know ultimately this is this is it this is just this a pop is, song yeah, a rock and roll this band is this is how that's, it should be that's that's perfected in the studio as well so yeah exactly. and in the studio for sure because yeah. like this this is the sound of them like kind of stretching their imagination and then actually achieving something close to what they imagine and i think that is is what 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 you can hope for with like a studio record? Do you like the like uh, the guitar solo at all? Love the guitar solo. Yeah, that's uh... is that Sterling or no, is that Doug? Doug on that one. That's Doug. Man, Doug is the fucking secret weapon on this record. Yeah. He's killing it. Well, I guess yeah, according to him, something. like Sterling's are he's 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 taking classes at um, City University. He's thinking about going to grad school. And because they're not again coming back to because they're not tracking as a as a four piece band, it's Sterling would like call me like, do you, uh, you guys need me today? Maybe you don't need me today. And they're like, well, we don't right. know. We don't know what's going on. It's like I'm not coming in today. <laughs> so anyway, so that's it's Lou and Doug. Yeah, it's it's really kind of yeah. uh, a, a a gruesome twosome uh, recording project between the two Long Island prodigies. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, by the end of this song, it's just so wild. The, it rocks. This full-length version, it's it really is kind of like the best. It 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 connects what they're doing in this record to what they did earliest on. It it actually like gets really intense, but it's still so poppy. Like they're yeah. they're like dashing the hopes as you're listening of them being like played on the radio, but they're just trying to play on the radio so hard. Yeah, like it's. It's kind of, it's just great. Should it's have been a hit. So. Yeah, it should have. In a in a more just in a in a fairer world, it would have been. I also love how rock and roll and Sweet Jane, uh, just are you know are parts of Lou's repertoire that he kind of like 
holsters and revisits again and again and again throughout his entire career yeah. the same way that heroin is you right. know and and it, they're, they're songs that just kind of live with him and that he uh, 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 evolves throughout time the way that you know so many of Bob's classics are um, you know, it's just uh, they, they stand right up there with anything else that he ever wrote from the earliest days to the latest days you know it's as good as it gets yeah um, I sort of feel like some of your your material, Dean, is like share, it shares something of, pretty clearly to me, at least in my mind, like the space between like the self-titled Velvet's record and this, like like Galaxy Five Hundred and Luna, kind of like dwell in in both of those and at various points. Oh, but interesting. They have yeah, kind of, you know, at at the one extreme, like some of the harder rocking stuff in Luna is like close to what you have at the end of here of, of rock and roll. And then, you know, anything on like the earliest of galaxy 500. Yeah. I'm certainly, obviously we were in with Luna, we were in, you know, fancier studios taking more time and, and going a little heavier too. I mean, it's just exploring that. It seems like, yeah, can't help but draw that parallel a little bit. Well, we had, and we had Sterling play, play, uh, play guitar on one, one song on that. On a Luna record, on did you really on a Bewitched album? Yes, he plays uh, Damn. Yeah, the song "Friendly Advice." It's a uh, oh my goodness, yeah, it's great. Uh, he, uh, it's just beautiful playing from him. It's a long, it's a long song. <laughs> it was, was so, that... it was so long. He was like, "This is getting into kind of Grateful Dead territory." It's going like, <laughs> maybe we should do an edit on this. <laughs> yeah, you gotta you gotta get some Doug Yule mindset. Yeah, you gotta cut yeah, that down yeah. in the studio, Dean. Uh, do, I guess that was fall. I mean, yeah, Bewitch came out. Yeah, yeah what, that was right. Yes, that was four, we were, right? So right after the yes. the tour. Yes, we actually Man. did some demos while we were in London. I think to at some point on the on the tour. We, yeah, that's beautiful. Um, cool it down. Cool it down. You know, so <laughs> so we do we do cool it down a little bit uh, as hot fire as we get started on this record. Uh, we're gonna cool it down, you know, pretty immediately here with with cool it down. Cool it down, you know you better. Cool it down, you know you better. Cool it down, you know you better. Cool it down. Um, which is, uh, you know, this is. It, it's it's not it's not rock it's, and roll or sweet jane but it's song. not it's yeah. not trying to be rock and roll or sweet jane you know i i think that uh, a lot of this record um is uh is just it's it's music it's a put it on record to to borrow one of our terms yeah. uh, and it's the only velvet underground record that you can really just put on uh, as far as i'm concerned and this is a, a put it on song you just put it on and you listen to it and it's good and then there's another one after that yes it's, it's, <laughs> it's as simple it's, as that true. it's a good album track it's not uh it's not of our favorite <laughs> no but of course looking for I, miss linda lee yeah. it kind of makes a statement all its own by doing that and i can't help but feel like if you want to read into the record and mythologize it which is you know our our job then uh you can talk about why why they would even include such a song and not just one type, not just one like this. Like there's kind of a bunch of decent rock and chugly songs yeah. that um, just kind of fill out this record. And uh, it, it can't, it kind of comes to mind as like the, the same thing Dylan was doing, you know, in the early seventies, he was also just kind of like 
put putting out some filler yeah. that we now can really enjoy but like yeah well they had a lot of songs here yeah and what I, what Too i find so songs. interesting what i find so interesting is like what records or what songs made the record and what songs didn't cuz like lou had satellite of love at this point and he had fucking ocean which is obviously at the end of the first lou reed record he had sad song and oh i guess it was called oh gin at this point but what became oh jim on Ber- like he had a lot of big songs from the first couple years of his solo career and uh and for whatever reason didn't feel like he had gotten the right kind of version or or feeling or sound on those um and so you know i don't think anyone would debate that satellite of love is a better song than cool it down yes it's um, good that he, he uh we let mick ronson and david bowie perfect that one <laughs> he gave uh, a little more time to bake well, <laughs> I, I a little longer he, in the oven i feel like maybe he knew that those were a little bit more personal or a little bit more special and like that at this point he's got one foot out of the door of this band so like yeah, exactly. he's hardly even in the mood to um be precious about it Saturday of love so he's still working on the bridge too because the bridge lyrics here is i i hear that you've been bald with winking blinking and nod yeah improved on that but that said it's like the whole the whole coda and yeah he's got the the whole uh, the whole outro he's kind of got it sort of figured out but yeah it's an interesting kind of sound it's it's uh it's less um you know uh theatrical than what you get on transformer yes. uh which is not to say that the theatricality of transformer is a bad thing but uh you know it's it's some of these songs we, we talk about this all the time but some of these songs are big enough to sustain multiple kind of versions tangled up in blue is the perfect example from bob's catalog that there's there's 15 songs there in that one song you know from verses and, and, and there's 15 songs in cool it down well <laughs> and, and you know there's I'm pretty sure there's, there's one song in there's cool one it song down. in cool it down but there's a couple more in satellite of love yeah it's like it's um, a good hoodie and the blowfish song too right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tangled up in blue i, I only wanted no i don't was... New isn't age. There a, isn't there a lawsuit around that? Anyway, I digress. I'll let you guys. Pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> That's what this show's for—is just digressing and digressing. But um, New Age um, is the next song, and who wrote this? Lou Reed. Yeah, Lou Reed wrote all the songs. Okay, he wrote all the songs. He didn't sing all of them, but he wrote all the songs. He doesn't sing this right. one. And yeah. he doesn't sing this one. And um, and famously uh, claims in some quote uh, that Doug Yule sang this one, but he didn't understand the first word of what it was about. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, that's Lou's that's, that's not mine. That, like, no disrespect, but the guy didn't have a clue what this is about. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, I think that uh, that might be why I even was, a part of me felt like maybe Lou didn't write it, is because the way it's performed just feels like it's not like him. Like, I don't know. I do think that the first line is really funny. Can I have your autograph? He said, he said to the, the fat blonde actress. <laughs> Can I have your autograph? He said to the fat blonde actress. You know, I've seen every movie you've been in. From pairs of pain. Of glory, and when you kissed Robert Mitchum, gee, but I thought you'd never catch him over the hill right now. 
something about like the kind of uh, quiet way it's, <laughs> it just drops that on you. This has so, got a Berlin kind of flavor to me lyrically. Uh, I think does. like it, it. It this sounds like the kind of writing style that he takes on. You know, fucking Caroline says, um, or um, not the bed necessarily, but like it, it's it's got a sharper kind of edgier kind of feeling and. You know the 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 version that we get on the record is I mean it's a great song but it does there is sort of a weird tension I think between the way that it's put across and what it actually well, is yeah about. I I don't know I, I like the vocal I think it's a I think it's a really a beautiful vocal I, it's not mm-hmm. doesn't have the attitude that Lou Reed would would bring to that no it's, right. it's just um, a different attitude yeah. I think. And and then I guess again the the question is so so why is Lou not sing why is Lou not singing these songs. And the, I guess the story you read as well, he was, because we, they were simultaneously to these sessions, they were playing Max's Kansas City, and he like had blown out his voice, and he's like, oh, I don't want to sing, you you sing, who knows. Yeah, there's probably some kind of a, I don't know, if he was also just, you know, as we said, kind of looking at the door when he's in the band at this point, um, maybe he wouldn't turn down the, yeah, why don't you take this one, just like, you sing this, you yeah, sing yeah. this, like... There's something about like kind of softening the blow of his exit, maybe at the back of his oh, mind, by like, kind of yes. dispersing the songs. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's mean. interesting to think about, like, because you know, Lou gave John the boot, right? Because Lou was so serious about like controlling everything himself, like this, like the, had to follow his vision, and like John had his own competing vision, and he just mm. he couldn't deal with that. And then by this time, just fucking twelve, eighteen months later, he's 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 the complete opposite of that he's like he's writing these songs and yeah he's apparently blowing out his voice playing at max's every week it's to the point where he's just like all right doug you you know you take this one i don't i don't give a shit um and it's just interesting to sort of chart his own personal journey i think throughout the band where he cares so seriously about it in 19 late 1968 into 69 when john gets the boot and the third record is made and then just nary a year later he's like all right you know i'm done with this shit well it's like what would happen if if you stopped doing the podcast and and i had to do it myself can you imagine oh, yeah can you imagine how not that, that, not that you thought about that never i mean it, i've had nightmares about it yeah yeah it would just go down the tubes but you know in another world like where i was the one who's like i have a really specific way that i'm gonna do this show and like <laughs> then you know maybe i i fire ian and then my my version of the show exists for a little bit before i completely fall to my knees realizing I'll, i can't do it alone <laughs> <laughs> i think that's how bands work sometimes too. well that's happened yeah. to some other bands i mean don't we but like if you study the history of the clash that's it like, like you know with right. we're gonna find we're gonna find mick jones like oh damn does anyone actually know how to put a song together <laughs> shoot uh, it's uh, it's a tale as old as time. It feels like every good rock, every great rock band has been through that uh, that exact cycle, and some of them came through it stronger, and others uh, did not. See the Smiths, for instance. Um, anyway, New Age. But, I, I do not. This is not a track I skip over. I love this song. I love it too. I, I just it's it um it is always just sort of a puzzle to me why why Doug is the one taking this vocal because this really just feels like such a loose yeah, song. Yeah, that's true. That's you true. Know, from that's the, true. From the, from the, the, the lyric. Um, but yeah, the way that it builds at the end, you know, I think is, yeah, is really kind of bridge. Is Someone's beautiful. Someone's got a hold yeah. on me. It's Someone's got a hold on me. Yeah, yeah man, that's, mm, it's good stuff. I'll come running to you. Um, I'll come running to tie your shoe. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's Brian Eno stealing things again. I <laughs> swear, there there's some Brian Eno moments on this. Like the uh, there's certain of those like la 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 type uh, crescendos that feel kind of like stuff on Warm Jets. Or did it did it well, occur to you when you were doing the Candy Says that Candy Says that that Eno's rewrote that as Cindy tells me. No, oh. no. Wow. I mean, that's yeah. what that's what struck me last time I heard Cindy tells me. I was like, oh, wait a minute. Of course. Yeah. There it is. We we were kind of hung up on just how much Eno seems to have taken from uh, Kale uh, melodically. And right. Whole, uh, a lot of his songwriting seems kind of like directly um, related to, especially stuff like like uh, on on Kale's uh, first record, um, like the. Half past France feels like such a like, kind of like soft glam Eno song, but um, I digress. Yeah. <laughs> Once again, um, well, we flip the record now and we go on to the second side of Loaded, uh, and this is where we <laughs> we start stretching our legs. I would say yes. um, some people don't I, like side two. I love I, coming back to it. I, it's, I, I mean, we've been neck deep in Bob Dylan shit for the last month, so it, you know, I, I have I set loaded aside until just you know last week or something, and then coming back to it and listening to it again seriously for the first time in a while, I was like, I forgot how much the second side kicks. I love the second side <laughs> of this record. It rocks. It's, I mean, I'm <laughs> listening to the song that kicks it off. Do you want to tell every tell the class? What Head we're... held high, baby. This is just a rock and roll song. I love it. Putting it all into the vocal on this one, like this sound. This sounds like Lou like kiss. on, it on the like kiss. bells or something. Yeah, it's, he's, it's, it's he's kind of glam sounding. Wired up here. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't know. It's not my. It's not my favorite. But it's interesting. Also, reading about this, that when they're working on it on the song, they're in the studio. They're like, "Oh yeah, this could be a single. This could be a single. You know, head hell." I mean, like, you know, I, I wouldn't. I would not pick that for the single. But they really <laughs> thought it was, and they were really working with that in mind. But this sounds like rock and roll animal to me. Like, it this sounds is... like I want to rock and roll all night. I mean, yeah, I, like it. It is. This is the. This is the stupid, uh, you know, id level groin driven version of <laughs> yes, Lou Reed yes. that we get yeah, yeah. time and time again throughout his career. He's just singing about, the, you know, rocker having a good fucking time. The, yeah. the energy that's activating this is like the thrill of John Cale not being in the room. It's like just he's like, this would never happen with John. Oh, yeah. John would hate this. <laughs> it's like it's like he's kicked out the the owner of a of a house and is now just like painting all the walls pink and putting in a shag carpet and it's it's like caddyshack <laughs> it's just like caddyshack uh and the third single from the record released all the way in 1972 i don't know what atlantic was doing releasing singles from loaded in 1972 a full two years after the record came out two and a half years after lou had fucking dissolved the band at that point but uh, it did end up getting a, a oh, single right. release. So they were right. It was point. a single. 
Yeah, just two, just 24 months after mm. he had quit the band, <laughs> just before Squeeze. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a rock song. I love rock songs. I love Head Held High. Easy as that. Simple as that. Um, and then uh, it, <laughs> Lonesome Cowboy Bill. <laughs> Dean, what's your sort of like overall take on, on the second uh, side of this record? Um. Well, these first two songs are not my favorite, but I think it gets really good as it goes along. So Right. Yeah. And Lonesome Cowboy Bill, I've actually covered this song. I did it because I did Really? It, well, did I, you? I did it because did an album of, of like Western songs, cowboy songs that was, you know, like Marty Robbins stuff with my friend mm-hmm. Cheval Sombra, Chris Popor. And he's like, oh, we should do Lonesome Cowboy Bill. Lonesome Cowboy Bill. Just in, in sitting down and learning the song, I was like, oh, at, again, actually, it's got a lot of chords in it. It's kind of, it's got a key change. It's kind of complicated. It's like very, you I don't really, that said, I don't really like uh, the, the version that the Velvets do on this record. I just That's think the fair. song is, is better than what they do with it. Uh, um, and so listening to the, the demo of it, I don't like that that well either, but I can send you my... Uh, yeah, please do. I would like, yeah, you are <laughs> friends you. and lonesome cowboy okay, Bill yeah. as the Velvet Underground <laughs> songs that you've covered. And, you are and, really... <laughs> and, in, and in looking at those songs, I could feel like the like the hand of Doug Yule in, in both of them. I'm just like, oh, listen to how he modulates here and he goes to this thing. And it's like, I don't think, I don't think Lou would have done that. The hand of Yule. Yeah. yeah. And I guess this song also is um, maybe, I don't know if, if it was intended to be some, to be involved with Warhol's film Lonesome Cowboys. Um, oh, that's yeah a reference point I didn't even have. Yeah, yeah. I've not seen that film, but it looks funny just from the poster. Lonesome Cowboys, Lonesome Cowboys, about queer cowboys. Way, sure. way yeah, before, 1968. Way that must Lou must have that must have been in his brain yes. whether or yes. not he was actually yeah. writing it for that. Yeah, it's, it's not the only sort of like country song. That we have, and then later we'll get wagon wheel. Like there's this kind of strain of like weird, like goofy country tinged numbers yes. that kind of come out of Lou at this period. Yeah, but it's 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 funny. I mean, the same thing was happening with Dylan. Yeah, he's going but, Nashville uh, skyline mode here. He is. It's as much as he'll ever do that. Yeah, exactly. Well, if we get to, if you're talking about the, the country songs, if we get onto um, I found a reason. Yes. Um, the 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 main version on the album is not country, but the alternate version is. It's and it's kind of it's it's got a country feel, and it's got mm. it's got him on harmonica, sounding very much like early Dylan. Dylan esque. Dylan esque. Um, I mean, this is the first song on the second side that I think is as good as anything on the record. I, I agree with that. Yeah. This song is extraordinary, and I think it's perfect. I think it has to come after. Head held high and lonesome cowboy bill for me at least from a sequencing level because it really like it just it packs such a punch after these really kind of goofy almost novelty songs um, uh, that that start this second side and then and then all of a sudden it's like oh shit oh wait they this were is the, this is the band that made pale blue eyes yes yes and it's and it's and it sounds it's got that vibe to it it just sounds 
beautiful and and delicate, and the harm the vocal harmonies are great. So good. Galaxy 500, I'll, I'll just say, is like a band that uh, you made it your business, I think, to explore that type of rock songwriting. I mean, something we said when we talked about the self-titled Velvet's record was that the big innovation, the big discovery for everybody and for that band on that record was realizing that rock music could be soft as you want it to be as well as loud as you yes. want it to be. Yes. It, it, that it can also go quiet and still be rock. And um, it's nice to see that that still appears very clearly on this record as it does so much on the previous one. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is as close as they get to the third Velvet's record on on Loaded. Yeah. And it's just, it's a sound and a feeling that like, uh, I don't think they could have done with John, you know, uh, or even really, you know, unless it was just really Lou and Dove, like just the, I think the, the, the alchemy, you know, the, the chemistry between the two of them, Lou and Doug, just like Doug's, you know, innocence and, and, uh, joie de vivre, you know, like sort of like gave Lou license to indulge that own, that, that side of himself as well, I think, uh, to an extent. And, um, you know, it, that's not the only note in him, obviously, there's plenty of other ones. Um, but uh, getting a glimpse of that, I think, is so exciting and thrilling, especially in the context of this is still a Velvet Underground record yeah. at the end of the day. I think, I think the lead guitar on this is by Sterling. It's, I mean, it sounds like it is, and it sounds like, it again, sounds like the stuff on like the third album. It just totally. It's kind of delicate, pretty stuff that he does. But... Yeah, it's, Sterling is such a, a great... I mean, he was still here, and he was always there, and he is holding the whole thing together in a way because he's the he's so integral, so important to the, what the he's band a huge is. part of the sound of the band, and that's and I think you know when he 
came into play on the on the Luna on Bewitched. He played on two songs, whatever. Just someone like that. They just you sit out there and he starts playing. You're like, oh, you're like, wow, that sounds. Mm. Oh, I don't know, like like Ron Ashton would evoke the Stooges. There's just something in their in their fingers and the way. No, it's not. It's not effects pedals. It's not sounds. It's just something in the way they play. That, that yeah, that, that's yeah, the Velvet Underground. That, right? Yes, yeah. that nails that, that is a <laughs> yeah. huge part of it, and that he doesn't really get the. the the, the credit that he deserves it's just like oh and 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 uh and i kind of that's something else like i kind of uh, you know complain i had with it with the with the movie again i was i'm just like you know they just kind of just brush over him so quickly and i yeah. think he's such an inter- like oh yeah he's just the, the guitar player i'm like no he's a big part of what the way yeah the the movie i wish would have been like a multi-part series i really would have preferred it to be able to go deeper into each member um yeah, I thought it was well done, but uh, yeah, it it could never really do it justice to each member. As no, much as no, it's I, I mean I, I like the film, but it's you know it should be called The Birth of the Velvet Underground. So New York, right. New York City, yeah. and the Birth of the Velvet Underground. That's that, like that, Velvet that's Underground, comes, yeah. like the the uh, yeah A, a to Z of like like the crash course of like what what were they? Yeah, Velvet Underground one hundred and one. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I found a reason is just uh, uh, underscore it extraordinarily beautiful. One of the best songs in the entire Velvet's catalog, I think, and uh, you know, a perfect illustration of what this particular group of people was capable of at this particular moment in time. It's it's different than the Velvet Underground or Nico. It's different than White Light. It's different than the third one. But it 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 stands up, I think, just as 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 strong, just as tall against any of those those other records, those songs, those other records. It's so close to like Coney Island Baby, though. Yeah, it's 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 like that, especially that talking part where he's. Like, I found a reason. Oh, that's great. And the reason, oh. babe, it was you. Yeah. Oh. Honey, I found a reason to keep living. And you know the reason, dear, it's you. And I've walked down life's lonely highways hand in hand with myself and I realize how many paths have crossed between us something that uh, Dylan does too like that influence of um, that like (laughs) settling down into that uh, sultry like smoky talking part yeah and and it's and it's very hard to do that stuff and uh I don't know. I discovered trying to. You mentioned the cover we did of most of the times. Trying to do that vocal, that was really hard because I'm just like, there's no. Oh, well, I, I digress here, but there's, there's no. No, especially yeah, especially doing there's doing no any melody, sort of. There's no melody. like, what is he doing here? He's nope. just kind of out there talking, and it's very hard to. to Anywhere. Yeah. Anytime really... you cover Bob, you're you're having you're 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 kind of off on your own, and you're having a hard time. And especially 1989, Bob. Oh mercy, Bob! You are really like good. Yeah. Good luck trying to emulate whatever the fuck he was well, doing. All you got to do is just try to feel it, and I think that cover works just because you know you got to kind of like let go and uh, let Jesus take the wheel. And, uh, <laughs> yes. Have that, have that song just. Uh, Take you where it well, because it's like a, it's more of a more of an acting performance than a well than a singing performance, right? Maybe. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're totally so right. Dramatic. I mean, it's got talk about another yeah, song that's got weird demo versions and stuff. That uh, I'm so glad that the you know 
they they got to the version that they got to. Every time that somebody says they like the demo version of most of the time more, I'm just like, what are you talking Come about? On. <laughs> yeah. It's like saying, I, oh, I like, I don't know. I like a sandwich before you put anything in between the bread. It's like <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah. Um, well, just as quickly and, uh, and uh, efficiently as we flip the script from stupid uh, bullshit rock songs to just one of the most striking, beautiful uh, moments of emotional resonance, uh, in the entire catalog with I Found a Reason. <laughs> We're going right back the other direction. <laughs> Train around the, the bit. The most annoying song they've ever recorded. than Sister Ray in a uh, I love the sound of that guitar. Uh, it is... It, it's, I, I don't... I'm guessing that's Sterling, probably. That doesn't sound like Doug to me. You might know better, Dean. But um, maybe it's even Lou. But I, it the, might be the, Lou. Uh, yeah. yeah, the screeching yeah, the scree- tone to it's, that. It's not me screeching, it's probably Lou. Exactly. And I think they tried to they tried to track this with a tremolo. In fact, there's a few songs in the Loaded Sessions that they're trying to track by setting a tremolo on the guitar a really hard tremolo that, that, that actually will set a tempo for you. And it's uh, it's a difficult thing to do. You can kind of like you get like it'll work for like a minute and then it's like, oh, we're getting out of time. We're not, it doesn't. So shocked that it didn't uh, it didn't really pay off. Yeah. This is uh, another uh, Eno sounding moment. That guitar does kind of have, yeah, sort of a, like babies on fire kind of tone right. to it or something. What is it? Uh the Papa Negro blowtorch. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eno is just like looking and taking notes in his little you know, notebook the whole time, huh? Listen, I mean, you know, to, uh, you, if you steal from the right people, you're you're going to be in business. So he uh he could have done worse than to to swipe from Lou and John. All right, so so Doug Yule says, I've got a note here that Doug Yule says, drums are either me or Adrian Barber or a combination. Whoever it was, it was overdubbed because the original track was just Lou and the tremolo guitar, and we tried to play it live doing that to tremolo, but they couldn't do it. So it is tracked to that tremolo. That's ridiculous. Anyway. <laughs> See, and that makes sense because this is... This is the second to last song, right? And the same spot that uh, that you get on the third record is Murder Mystery, which is the big kind of like sort of annoying, um, <laughs> like, you know, artistic, quote unquote, avant-garde kind of uh, a move on that record. This one, I think, you know, it's not it, it, they're not pursuing the same thing they do with Murder Mystery, but it makes sense that uh, uh, it occupies the same spot on the record and that it's the most um uh, least uh, <laughs> hit sounding song on the entire album, the one that just makes you want to tear your hair out. Yeah. Well, I guess when you're sequencing an album, I mean, if it's a, t- a, ten, a 10 song album, number nine is often going to be the worst song. Because <laughs> um, cause it's, you know, you're like, oh, right, where are we going to put this one? We, well, it can't be that we, think we have to go out with a really good one. But uh, so number nine. 
it's where you gotta you gotta you gotta plug the, plug the cruft into. Is that is that the uh, is that the rule that you've always followed, Dean? I, I don't know. I yeah. If I look at <laughs> I, let me look at say like Luna's Penthouse album. The ninth song is Hedgehog. That's the worst song on the record. No, yes. Hedgehog's great. Okay, there you go. That's why they picked it to be the. That's what, oh, that's why they picked it to be the single. We posted about Hedgehog today because it has a very funny coincidence where, uh, well, maybe not a coincidence. Bob Dylan used the same exact photograph on his album Modern Times as the single of Hedgehog. No, he wouldn't do that. (laughs) Bob's never stolen it. No, he wouldn't. That's not the Bob Dylan. No, I'm just saying you both stole. Yeah, yeah. We licensed it. We did it. We did it first. So it's okay to steal from thieves. If, uh, if, if, Bob, if I know Bob, it's probably, you know, the, the, the cover design on Modern Times just says, like, you know, photograph and cover design Bob by Dylan. Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> Arrangement, Bob Dylan. I'm sure he never saw our Hedgehog single. It was the UK single, whatever. I don't, or, or, oh, that's no. fair. Yeah, I doubt he's got a copy of that. The guy he's gets pretty, around. He's pretty with it, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, you some people like us to believe. Yeah. <laughs> he's he comes up. on regularly. Yeah. <laughs> He's he's on like every other. He's the third mic, basically. Third, yeah. Uh, um. Well, I mean, let's uh, let's wrap it. Let's well, wrap the whole. You don't want to keep talking about train round the Do you have more to say about train? No, no, that's the There's a credence song apparently that uh, this sort of riffs on or rhymes on. I, I'm credence not... came up in my mind listening to this record because uh, you know Lou, Lou liked them, uh. like because he was. He was saying, like everyone else. Who, yeah, Credence you know, is great. Credence is a good band. Chugal. Uh, yeah, and you know also Adrian Barber, who produced this record or engineered this record, that he did the first Allman Brothers record. Mm, okay. Yeah. Wow. The, the Chugal Underground. Yes. <laughs> anyway. Oh, sweet nothing. Oh, sweet nothing. Oh, sweet nothing. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful song. Probably best on the album. Uh, uh, it's right? it's certainly like, up there. One one of them. Yeah. I mean, yeah. on a record with Sweet Jane and Rock and Roll, it's tough to say that anything's better than those two. But I think it's it's right up it's there a, with them. Yeah, it's as good. And again, it's it's our boy Doug taking us out. Uh, he brought us in with Who Loves the Sun, and he's sending us out with Oh Sweet Nothing. And this is really like the whole Doug Yule kind of contribution to the Velvet Underground. Uh, discography. I think this this is the this is the one for me. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Just the 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 clarity with which he he relates this song um, and, and the the kind of honeyed aspect of these vocals and then the way that it builds up and kind of coalesces around that and Lou on the backing vocals by the end of it. It's just it's a really extraordinary 
studio kind of production, the same thing that I think he's going for on a song like Ocean at the end of the first record and not not quite getting there because he's a little you know, he's he's a little off his rocker at that point. But this is like this is this is proof positive that there was something there. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful vocal. He plays um the guitar solo in it as well, Doug Yildas mm. again, so Yeah. Justice for Doug. Justice for Doug. <laughs> yeah. Um so then I'm just listening to it. Are you? It's, it's yeah. like when everyone's quiet when a meal is uh, being eaten. It's just like so good. Extraordinary song. Timeless. Timeless. Hmm. And sort of, uh, you know, telegraphing or predicting some of the sort of uh, walk on the wild side, um, New York telephone conversation type of stuff that Lou's going to do later on, where he's, you know, writing these songs about these characters from the street. These ones don't strike me as, like, actually inspired by legit, you know, human beings, um, like Candy Darling or anything. But, um, you know, I, I think he's he's moving in that direction. Polly May, Ginger Brown, Jimmy Brown, all of uh, all of our characters. Well, and I guess it's, yeah, it's, it's the final lyrical statement too from them. And anyway, so, mm-hmm. yeah, so oh sweet nothing, you ain't got nothing at all. Boom, I'm out of here. I'm quitting the band. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's a great play on words. It's sweet nothings, like to whisper sweet nothings, and you got nothing. Like it means nothing. It means everything. It means nothing. It's a sweet thing, but it's nothing. There's a lot there. It's also so interesting the way that it is, like you said, Ian, like populated by all these names. I think that's something about the Velvet Underground that was always there. Is you get this idea of of a world full of people uh, on these records just these references to these people that don't really exist or like sort of half exist. And that's, that's a weird constant that just is always part of the band. And I think it's something that makes the band feel like bigger than just uh, uh, the four or five people involved. It, it kind of makes you think about New York, about just right, like about cities, just about, yeah. just about all the people who are alive around them. Yeah, you think about, um, well, we were talking about it earlier, uh, you know, uh, Lou blowing out his voice playing weekly at Max's. Just like think, just imagine the concept of that. Like they just had like the Velvet Underground residency at Max's. Playing in this, sh- you know, you- in this shitty little room. Yeah. You know, that, that, that's the thing. Again, watching the movie, I was like, oh, he, he just totally makes the right decision. Can you imagine how yeah. def- deflating it is? Here they are. They're making this, they're making these amazing records one after another. And they don't play five for years York. later. They don't play in New York for two years. Yeah, and then they they, they come back and they you're playing at Max's Kansas City. It's like it must have been deflating. And, shitty little room. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah it's like play, playing at the Echo. <laughs> I think it's smaller like, than that. Whole I think life. a lot smaller than that even. But uh, you know, I, yeah, think, yeah. I think that room held like probably less than a hundred people. It's like playing, you're playing at Non Plus Ultra until you pass away. <laughs> For natural causes. There's nothing wrong with Men Plus Ultra. But no, still. no, all these places are great, but you know, but the Stones are, are playing at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, He's exactly. got the ambition, <laughs> and you know, and I don't think Lou wanted to be the Stones. I don't think he wanted to be like a mega star in that way necessarily. But 
He wanted to see recognition. Yeah, he like, wanted to be he uh, recognized for like the 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 artist that he was, and and yeah. you know the the ability that he had to just craft some of the most beautiful, extraordinary records uh, that you could ever hope to hear. And obviously, he would get to that and build to that over years and years and he years. You know, one of the legendary, worked. yeah, exactly, lifers. But at the time, it must have just felt so stifling and frustrating and and suffocating to just be like this is as good as i can ever get and i'm still just you know there's 50 people here on a tuesday night right yeah some people have suggested that like part of the reason they didn't play new york for two years is that he was that he was that lou was just kind of overwhelmed by all the the people all the like all the factory people and all the hangers all the people who would show up and just want right. want something even want something it was time and he was fine and i could see that in a way sometimes it's easier like you let's go to cleveland let's go to boston let's just get that <laughs> just go somewhere we don't know anybody and just it'll be a little more relaxing for all of us yeah boston was uh sort of the the real headquarters city of the boat yes. underground and that's where jonathan richmond saw them like 70 times per, or whatever and became like close friends when i first saw jonathan richmond play in 2013 like my first time seeing him it was really soon after lou died and he talked a lot about um the whole experience of meeting oh, them nice. and yeah and uh and what it was like at the factory and like made a point of saying that warhol was very nice and that he would he would say things like did he do your homework and <laughs> make sure like that he did his homework and right that comes through in the doc too. Uh, all the moments with Jonathan Richmond. There's something like an innocence to this record that I think there's one moment on this extended version that captures that. Or um, I think it's at the end of this song, this outtake. I love you, um, a session outtake. All right. Where you just hear Lou after this song, which is a really good one, and I, I thought you know easily would have could have taken the place of. Say, um, cool it down. Yeah. Um, no, cool it down. It, it essential to the okay. legend of love. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, there's a moment at the end here where I think it's like really sweet and speaks to like what's what is beautiful and and lasting about this record, where Lou just says, "That was cool." <laughs> All right, nice. It is cool. So why does he? So why does? So yeah, I guess the question is why, why does why does he quit? And I think you know maybe it's a, it's a whole it's a whole bunch of reasons. Sterling suggested yeah, I mean, in one interview that that there was this this um, article that came out in uh, what was it? Uh, Gay Power came out in the magazine Gay Power. That was yeah. just talking about how uh, how like Sterling Morrison is so sexy and how. Um, Doug Yule is so such a little Christmas treat as well, and it's still, it's still <laughs> like, oh, Lou's not gonna like this. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Sterling had the stash. That that was yeah. the difference. Lou just needed to grow the stash, and you know he would have been right up there. Come yeah, to think of it, I don't know that I've stash, ever huh? seen Lou Reed with facial Did hair. He? I don't think I've ever seen um, that. There, there is something, something very, like, very like for a theater piece where he's got like a pencil mustache on him. It's, it's oh, that's right. Yeah, I don't, I don't yeah the real, yeah, yeah from yeah. like the late 90s yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. I, I know the picture, yeah. He looked good. Yeah, <laughs> he did. But I think um, that the, the reason he quit, I mean, it seems pretty clear. And it's it, whatever it was, it, it was the right move because he, he knew he had a lot to, to do on his own. And, uh, 
you know, it's a good thing that he did because he spent the rest of his life figuring out how to just be the best version of himself as yeah. an artist. Well, I guess I'm sort of saying is if the complaint is, and the complaint is from some people, oh, that, that Doug Yule had too much control over what was going on, and Steve Sesnick, the manager, was trying to push him forward and say, you take the, you take, and like, well, why, why couldn't he just kick him out of the band if that's the case? But sometimes, oh, right. yeah. maybe it's easier to walk away than it is yeah. to just like fire someone else, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Just be like, yeah, you know what, I'm out. I think it's also notable, right, like after this, after Loaded, like he didn't put a record out for two years. He moved home and he like took up a like a, a typist job, like a secretary job, for basically for his dad. Yeah. Exactly. Like, you know, I I think clearly he was just, and that makes sense. I think that what you were saying, Dean, like uh, that there were too many, you know, scenesters and hangers on, and he was just like kind of over it. Like clearly he was just done with this whole world, this whole scene, this whole vibe, and just needed to needed to pull out and then ultimately reset and launch off on uh, a much more productive direction for the following 40 years. I wonder, was was there a period when, when Dylan was in Woodstock doing whatever he was doing there and Lou Reed was working as like an intern? Yeah, 1970. That's uh, Bob's both... up in Bob's up in Woodstock doing you know New Morning self portrait shit and lose out on Long Island <laughs> doing whatever he was doing. They yeah. both just had to get out. <laughs> and one of them has a lot more money in the bank. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a much larger house and is not living with his parents. Uh, um, and yet they both put out some of the greatest music of 1970. That would be loaded by the Velvet Underground, and that would not be New Morning by Bob Dylan, but rather Self Portrait. Right, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Dean, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, it was fun. Final, this was fantastic. Uh, any final words on this beautiful record, or the Velvets in general, or anything else that you have anything to say about it all? Um, I, I love, I love the, I love the record. I think we're, I think we're all convinced now of that. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me. Please, pleasure is all ours. And Luna's uh, hitting the road soon. Oh yes, right? we got some shows in the, some West Coast shows in January. Awesome. Go buy some tickets. Yeah. All right. Have a have a good rest of the evening. You, you too. too. Joker man.